It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like, what the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. As the sun set over the Hungarian town of Devicher on October 4th, 2010, the red ooze was still rolling through the streets in quick little rivers. Although the largest rush of toxic waste had already inundated the city, the red mud continued to paint the village buildings with a blood-red stain. An eerie whooshing sound, like heavy rain, echoed through the air. The entire region was covered in poison. In the streets, huge tractors charged through the currents of red sludge. Volunteer farmers risked their lives to drive through the caustic waste in the machines they used to move hay or plow fields. They drove up to houses that had been nearly crushed by the impact of the sludge. They urged frightened men and women to stretch their limbs out their windows and grab onto the safety of these makeshift rescue vehicles. Some of the residents needed to be rushed to hospitals as soon as possible. Many had wounds that sizzled through their flesh. Rescuers tried to ignore the garish open sores and exposed tissue of the people they saved. They needed to focus, or their injured neighbors wouldn't get to help before the toxic wounds became fatal. Welcome to Natural Disasters, a podcast original. I'm your host, Kate. And I'm Tim. Every Thursday, we'll explore the moments in history when the natural world turned deadly. You can find all episodes of Natural Disasters and all other podcast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Natural Disasters for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Natural Disasters in the search bar. At Parcast, we are grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. This is our second of two episodes on a toxic flood in Devicher, Hungary on October 4, 2010. The concrete walls of an aluminum plant waste reservoir burst after several days of heavy rain. The resulting flood of toxic waste lifted cars, wiped out hundreds of homes, and permeated the soil in the region. Last week, we heard about the negligence that led to the spill of 185 million gallons of toxic waste. We followed the devastating impact of the toxic flood as it overtook the towns of Devacher and Kolontar. This week, we'll explore the immediate aftermath and the wreckage that continued to emerge days after the initial disaster. We'll follow the subsequent investigation of the catastrophe, and we'll hear how the newly appointed town mayor led efforts to rebuild the town into an eco-friendly haven. At dawn on October 5th, 2010, Devicher Mayor Tualdi Tomas was wading through a caustic swamp of heavy metals. He fervently hoped his boots and protective coveralls would protect him from the cadmium, cobalt, and lead swirling in the mud around him. 
An acrid smell filled his nose as he looked out over his little town. Every building, fence, and tree left standing had an eerie, waist-high line of rust-colored residue. It appeared as though the town had been painted carefully by a brush overnight in a misguided prank. Tomas was exhausted. He had been up through the night, and he'd been frantically working since the flood rushed over the town at noon the day before. Now, small mountains of red rubble stood everywhere, the leftovers of the crumbled buildings that had toppled in the wave of toxic sludge. Devacher no longer resembled the sleepy town where Tomas had spent his whole life. It looked like it had been bombed. Most of Devacher's surviving residents had been evacuated to nearby villages where shelters had been set up in churches and auditoriums. Rows of beds and tables of packed sandwiches were put out for the displaced victims. But the toxic flow soon reached those surrounding villages as well. The sludge seeped into small creeks that fed into the larger tributaries of the Danube River. The recent rain had softened the ground and increased the permeability of the soil, which only helped to quicken the spread of pollutants. The toxic plume had traveled nearly 15 miles by October 5th, reaching at least six other towns. The region was in dire need of immediate help. Tomas's cell phone rang incessantly as he slowly tramped through the sludge. He was discussing how to find shelters for displaced residents and keep the evacuees safe. He spoke with a never-ending line of different government officials, policemen, and workers to coordinate the incoming help. But it was calls from the press that were the most intrusive. They wanted quotes. They wanted to know how the disaster happened. Reporters came to the village in protective outfits and masks, poised and ready with cameras and microphones. In addition to the reporters, over 500 policemen and soldiers arrived to organize infrastructure among the madness and ruin. They were directing traffic and continuing to clean roads and walkways, and everyone wore head-to-toe protective gear. The rescuers looked like aliens or spacemen, new arrivals to an unknown toxic frontier. As the cleanup began in earnest, the Hungarian government directed the temporary shutdown of Malzirt, the company responsible for the spill. Workers from the aluminum plant were dispatched to gather sludge from the streets of Devacher and ship it back to the headquarters in Akia, about 12 miles away. Rusty alkaline water splashed as industrial vacuums sucked up sludge gathered in homes and offices. Workers from the company hosed down streets and alleyways to wash away the heavy metals. Two-foot-deep puddles of diluted toxic water were then suctioned from between trees and the dips of roadways. Huge bulldozers gathered building wreckage and scooped up poisoned swaths of the surrounding forest floor. But no amount of cleaning could erase the red stains or fully remove the powdery, toxic dust that caked on wherever the waste dried. The demolished homes were a haunting sight. Living room couches were sopping wet with red mud, never to be sat on again. TVs were toppled over. Poison melted through plastic frames and burned away family pictures. Broken walls revealed inundated bathrooms with tubs and sinks filled with sludge amidst piles of detritus. Dolls and basketballs floated along in what used to be children's toy rooms. Refrigerators with food still inside were removed and put in massive garbage crates. 
In the midday on October 5th, government workers arrived with giant dump trucks and drove down uncharted paths and back roads. They poured clay into the tributaries of the Danube River. Officials claimed at the time that they would be able to neutralize the toxins and minimize contamination with the clay. As clay is naturally absorbent, it could lower the pH of the water by soaking in the poisons. But the mud was wildly toxic, yielding a pH of 13. That level of alkalinity could burn through skin and muscle tissue in a matter of minutes. A pH of 13 is similar to bleach or oven cleaner, neither of which is a substance a person would want to touch, ingest, or inhale. Throughout the afternoon of the 5th, the sludge spread through rivers and woodlands around Devacher and Kolontar. Just a day before, these bodies of water had been lively, clean, and filled with wildlife. Water sources that had been fresh enough to drink turned caustic overnight. Red sludge clogged the gills of fish, their bodies floating to the surface. Birds who had eaten poisoned plants and dying aquatic animals lay bloated at the river's edge. Small drowned rodents looked like clay figurines. The sheer number of dead creatures alarmed the workers as they gathered the nauseous carcasses. With gloved hands, they lifted the limp bodies of squirrels and raccoons that dripped with sludge into bins. Trash cans filled to the brim with these little corpses were incinerated by the dozen. The forest was strangely silent, save for the sounds of the heavy machinery scooping and suctioning the toxic waste from the environment. However, the cleaning efforts to stop the flow of caustic sludge through rivers and soil were coming up short. The emergency responders had underestimated the amount of toxic liquid there was to clean up. This was due to a corporate lie. In their own disaster plan, Mal Ziert accounted for only a fraction of the amount of toxic sludge they had generated. They had been using the same waste pond to dump aluminum byproduct since the 1960s. In addition to the glut of toxic waste, excess rainwater collected in the waste reservoir at the plant. Mixed with the aluminum byproduct, years of rain created a much more fluid and powerful force than expected when the dam failed. The vast amount of rainwater in the waste pond diluted the toxic sludge. When the wall deteriorated and burst, the sludge spread in a more fluid form. It flowed markedly faster than a more solid substance. The volume multiplied to over 185 million gallons of destructive liquid that polluted roughly 2,000 acres of land. Now, the excess liquid pooling around the villages made the cleanup process much more harrowing as it dried and hardened. The evacuated residents would not be able to return as soon as they had hoped, once the sludge had absorbed. The cleanup would take much longer than anticipated. By October 6th and 7th, some of these frightening facts trickled into the news and became public knowledge. The shock of what had happened was turning into anger, deep sadness, and fear for the future. Residents listened to the news and read articles online as details about the true scope of the disaster were beginning to come to light. They heard of the wide swath of land affected by the flood and realized the disaster was much greater than what they had seen in Devachair. 
They saw pictures of fish floating belly up in the midst of bubbling, burping globs. Greenpeace reported the danger of arsenic, chromium, and excessive mercury in the waters around Devachere. Arsenic levels in the wells of Kolontar were 25 times higher than the legal limit for drinking water and double the anticipated levels from the waste reservoir. It was difficult for residents to comprehend the level of poison now surrounding them. Many townspeople with only partially damaged homes remained in Devachere, refusing to leave. These residents watched out their windows as blurry red clouds filled the air. They tried to stay calm, but the danger was only increasing. A new problem arose as the toxic mud began to dry. The sludge became a cancerous dust. It was not safe to breathe in, but it was everywhere, caught in the breeze and stirred up by the machines. Masks were required to be outside. In some cases, people even wore them indoors as the dust made its way through air vents and under doors. And on the morning of October 7th, the wind started to pick up. Coming up, we'll see how the danger grew as the government and town officials rushed to save lives. Now, back to the story. On the afternoon of October 7th, 2010, the remaining residents of Devachere peered out their bedroom windows at the blustery breeze. Dark red dust blew against the tall white sanitation tents that housed cleanup workers and equipment. These temporary structures had been set up on street corners throughout the town. The policemen and local workers who worked day and night to remove the sludge came to clean themselves off in the tents. They still wore their protective white suits even as they hosed down. The atrocious effect the red mud had on skin was too great to take any chances. The 150 injured people in the hospitals, still tending to their spreading chemical burns, knew this all too well. As workers tramped around in their protective suits, cleaning up in the wake of the toxic flood, the sludge was still trickling from its origin point at the aluminum plant in Akia. The hole was being patched, but before and during the repair process, the remaining mud and liquid continued to pour out. Workers from the plant were working to patch the damage and build a new waste reservoir. The government also ordered a three-part dam to be built around the reservoir to block the flow. Hungary's Prime Minister, Viktor Orban, arrived in Devachere on the 7th to visit the cleanup. He was also going to inspect the dam building project in Akia to make sure everything was going as ordered. Orban walked the dusty streets of Devachere and Kolantar and spoke to villagers. He went to visit the injured citizens, including some who were still in critical condition with toxic burns. He promised them no one would be left without care. That care extended to missing persons as well. There were three people unaccounted for in Kolontar on October 7th. Family members prayed that their loved ones would be found frightened and hiding, or trapped, but still alive. On the afternoon of the 7th, a collection of emergency responders drained a fish pond in Kolontar. They feared the worst, that the three people reported missing near the pond would be found at the bottom of it. 
The pond was overflowing, milky and red with sludge. They stayed quiet next to the hum of the huge vacuum hoses. They kept their eyes peeled at each dark rock or dead fish that came into view as the water line slowly lowered. But the pond was empty and the three bodies remained missing. Eventually, the missing residents were added to the death toll. That made 10 dead by nightfall on October 7th. On October 8th, 2010, four days after the initial disaster, government officials ordered several tons of gypsum to be airdropped over the disaster zone. This odd, snowy powder soon coated the land. Gypsum is a soft mineral made of calcium sulfate. It's chalky and fibrous, used to make drywall and sidewalk chalk, and it's even more absorbent than clay. But most importantly, gypsum reduces toxicity in aluminum. And because it's white, gypsum powder is very visible when soaked with contaminant and makes it easier to clean affected areas. The coating of gypsum blurred the landscape. From the windows of strangers' homes, where the displaced residents slept on couches and in guest rooms, they watched ivory dust sprinkle lightly over the surreal red landscape. Gypsum was dropped all along the tributary rivers that ran towards the Danube as well. These small, clean rivers had all been infiltrated by the deadly spill. While some of the spill would reach the Danube, it would not destroy all aquatic life as it had closer to Devacher. Nothing could totally remove the poison, but the cleanup was lessening the toxicity levels. The slow flow of sludge that continued to spread through and remain in the towns would soon be neutralized. But the danger and fear were not over. On October 9th, 2010, five days after the initial spill, another frantic evacuation took place in Kolontar. City officials received word that there was a problem at the new dam being erected at the aluminum plant eight miles from Kolontar. The original source of the toxic flood was at risk of a massive leak again. The waste pond was a structure built with different staggered basins, one of which had failed the week before and produced the flood. Now, one of the basins that remained and still held toxic sludge looked ready to burst. In a panic, construction workers packed rocks around the basin wall. All work on the new dam ceased in order to support the reinforcement effort. The wall of the weakened basin bulged and scooted outward in tiny increments. Drips and gobs of sludge lifted over and dripped down the side of the wall like a cake pan overfilled with batter. Non-essential workers ran for shelter. If the basin burst, the remaining sludge would toss their bodies along in a second huge wave of poisonous muck. Down in Kolontar, policemen went door to door telling people they had to evacuate. Announcements were made on the news. People rushed to gather their belongings and make sure their loved ones were together. They boarded buses to other villages where they would be assigned places to stay. By the late afternoon of October 9th, sports halls and auditoriums were filled with several hundred beds to house people. Though many people stayed with friends and neighbors, the poorest families and the elderly used the public shelters. One elderly man told a priest that they felt like animals in a zoo. Everyone in the shelter halls felt disoriented. 
errant sobs were heard in the cavernous rooms. Mothers whispered to each other in fear. They had no idea if they had lost their homes. They had no news of the current situation at the building site of the new dam. Children played games in the halls, oblivious to the possible second disaster. One child told a reporter he had a good time playing with his friends and not going to school, even if they had to stay inside. Thankfully, the workers shored up the dam in time. The new dam was completed before the basin began to leak heavily. A second toxic flood would not wash through Kolontar. But people remained in the shelters waiting to return home. Journalists from all over the world, including Spain, France, Australia, and the U.S., conducted interviews with displaced residents. Citizens across the globe were fascinated by the disaster and fearful that such a thing could happen in their own regions. Many of the Hungarian villagers simply wanted to go home. Peter Molnar, a Kolontar citizen, told the BBC, They said we can go back in three days, but maybe we can never go back. Peter was correct. Things would not be going back to normal anytime soon. It was estimated that cleanup and rebuilding would take up to a year. One reporter, Elizabeth Rosenthal, who had been on the ground in those initial days, wrote that life would never be the same for the residents. She also spoke of the ecological disaster being one of the top three worst in Europe in over 30 years. She also pointed out that part of the reason the flood got so much attention was because of how photogenic the destruction was. The rusty sludge made the disaster particularly strange to examine. Few toxic spills and environmental atrocities received as much attention. Nevertheless, the real-life toll on the Hungarian countryside was devastating. Down in the village of Devicer, people were dealing with the emotional shock and loss of the traumatic event itself. Vigils were set up for the people who had died by drowning or complications from injuries. Extensive searches for missing persons were ongoing in the rubble of homes and barns. Morale was low amongst the townspeople. They did not believe life would ever return to happiness. They did not feel safe. They did not know if they could trust that anyone in power would see them through this disaster or if the company would be held responsible. Now that the cleanup was well underway, the victims wanted justice. Coming up, we'll see how Devichair dealt with the lasting effects of the disaster and what happened when the victims finally had their day in court. Now, back to the story. By October 10th, the emergency dam had been built at the aluminum plant, and the cleanup process was moving along in Devicere, Hungary. But there was still the looming question of what happened and who was to blame. The managing director of Malziert had already been taken in for questioning by the police. The government appointed a new caretaker and management team to head up the process of rebuilding the waste reservoir at Malziert. The company was ordered to provide any records on the previous inspections and maintenance. Hungary's National Bureau of Investigation had opened a new and comprehensive examination into the entire Malziert company the day after the flood. Now, the firm was facing charges for reckless endangerment. The hunt for the guilty parties was well underway. 
The NBI wanted to know which federal regulations were breached and how egregiously. They seized all inspection documents and began the questioning of employees and managerial staff. Experts were dispatched to fly over the areas affected by the toxic leak to document and assess damages. The aerial reconnaissance was the only way to see the full scope of the catastrophe. After all, before the disaster, the Malzirt waste pond that burst was so large, it could be seen from space. In the years preceding the flood, environmental groups in Europe had long been fearful of the potential dangers of having a massive waste pond in such close proximity to the town. As early as 2006, the waste pond was on a watch list by the International Commission for the Protection of the Danube River. They cited the waste pond as a potential source of catastrophic harm to the waterway. The World Wildlife Fund officials in Hungary even advocated for a full closure of the pond, as well as the shuttering of two other sludge waste basins in the region. But nothing had been done. And now everyone, from the townspeople of Devecer to the prime minister, wanted to know why. But it would take a long time before the representatives for the Malzirt company would go to trial. In 2016, almost six years after the flood hit the small Hungarian towns, the company was brought to court. While the towns had largely recovered by then, their citizens were still invested in finding justice. Zoltan Bakoni, the ex-director of Malzirt, was put on trial with other managers of the plant. They were tried for environmental damages and waste violations. Crowds of villagers gathered at the hearings. They had been enraged by Bakoni's initial response to the disaster. His first comments after the flood were callous and ignorant. He said, The toxic mud can be hosed off by a strong water current. It said I should be responsible, although I don't feel it. Malzirt expressed condolences to family members that had lost loved ones and for those who had lost homes, but they took no immediate responsibility. It further enraged many people in the town of Devecer who saw the lack of accountability as cruel and cowardly. Especially since there was evidence indicating that the powers at Malzirt had known there were issues with the structure. Not only had they done nothing to stop it from collapsing, they actively overfilled it for years preceding the October 2010 flood. During the 2016 hearing, Bakany claimed that the disaster was caused by the heavy rains during that week in October 2010. He said the movement of the soil beneath was overly affected by the weather, and there was simply nothing he or anyone else could have done to stop it. And the judge agreed. He announced that there was not enough proof that the managers of Malzirt could have stopped the flood. When the verdict was announced, the crowd cried out in anger. To them, it was not fair. It was not correct. The former director and 14 other employees, all involved with overseeing the reservoir or managing the plant, were acquitted. While the company was fined $650 million, the victims in Devacher wanted personal accountability. Most of the residents had been compensated for damages. By the time of the verdict, people were in their new homes in a restored town. But there was no denying that the flood had ruined lives and irreparably damaged others. And the environmental impact was permanent. 
Years later, people were still coping with exposure to toxins in the sludge. Residents and prosecutors were so unhappy with the charges, they appealed the decision and asked for a retrial. The pollution had been compared to the 2010 BP oil spill in the Gulf of Mexico. In that disaster, roughly 200 million gallons of oil spilled into the Gulf, damaging the ecosystems, but far enough offshore to avoid residential damage. This had been 185 million gallons of toxic waste flowing over the streets of several populated villages. The people wanted justice and to be recognized in a court of law. When the appeal went through, a retrial took place three years later in 2019. Prosecutors pleaded for punishments that fit the crime. It was a long fight, but one the people of Devachere were determined to win. This time, the court found the company members guilty of breaking many rules about storage and handling of the sludge. The court said in a statement, the defendant's negligence contributed to the catastrophe since they did not deal with the warning signs of a possible breach, and they misled area residents and authorities regarding the true amount and toxicity of water accumulated due to the rule violations, which ultimately became determinant factors of the catastrophe. They also expressed that the former CEO did not tell the truth about the spill. He, in fact, made willfully misleading comments that put lives in great danger. The court noted also that the mall Ziert employees were too late in notifying authorities about the flood and the toxicity in the dam. Environmentalists, activists, residents, and some government officials had been saying this all along. Finally, they were being validated in court. Two of the former executives were convicted and sentenced to prison. Zoltan Bakoni received a sentence of 2.5 years for public endangerment. A deputy CEO received a two-year sentence. Of the other defendants, eight received either suspended prison sentences, fines, or reprimands. Five were acquitted. While nothing would ever make up for what happened, people were happy that the years they had spent in court had paid off in part because it was to set an example that this kind of disaster was not to be taken lightly. The town would always be a monument to what happened and what so many of them had survived. And to make this monument, the town decided to rebuild itself as a pinnacle of green, sustainable living. Prime Minister Viktor Orban and Mayor Tewalde Tomas had serious discussions about the rebuilding. Orban suggested Tomas remove all remaining rubble, he told him to knock down anything partially damaged to replace it, even the buildings that had been there for centuries. Orban promised the government would provide financial help. The entire nation was committed to rebuilding the village. Tomas was ahead of the game long before he was given the go-ahead. He began reconstruction even in the first days after the 2010 flood. He planned for the rebuilding of 87 houses, he used almost all local materials, save for the bricks. He worked with Imra Makovets, a famous architect, who designed the homes for free. The rebuilding efforts would cost the national government 127 billion Hungarian forints, the equivalent of approximately $390 million. These new houses would be made in a different style than the others in the town. 
They would not resemble the Soviet apartments or charming Hungarian cottages that characterized the rest of Devicere. They would be identical cream-colored homes with red roofs, a collection of very new and modern dwellings that would serve as a potent reminder of the disaster. But there were residents, many of them older, who were too afraid to leave homes that had only been partially ruined. They could not bear to say goodbye to the familiar cracks in their walls and the kitchens where they had made Christmas meals and birthday cakes. These residents insisted that they would simply repair the damages, and they did not need to move. Some of the Devachere citizens who refused new homes also believed that building was a promise that might not be kept. However, those with homes that had been completely decimated had no choice but to have faith in Tomas's promise. Tomas did not stop his rebuilding effort at the collection of houses. He wanted the entire town to be a healthy and safe place for residents to enjoy. Tomas also wanted Devicere to be as eco-forward as possible as he helped to bring it back to life. Just like he had used local materials to build the homes, he would center the town around environmentally sound structures. He wanted to make community areas that promoted well-being and healing as well. He made a bus station that was heated by geothermal energy. He built a mulch-powered generator that sat behind the town hall. The generator was responsible for heating all the new homes. And to gather the mulch that would power the machine, he planted fields of fast-growing poplars in refreshed land that had been inundated by the sludge. In a healthy endeavor, Tomas oversaw the construction of a salt room in the local school, similar to ones found in spas. The walls were made of Himalayan pink salt. Chunks of salt warmed in the corners of the room, cleaning the air. These rooms are supposed to help heal respiratory maladies and lung issues. Many suffered from the toxic dust, especially children. Tomas encouraged students at the local schools to sit in the salt rooms often. According to a vice reporter who visited Devachere in 2014, the school director made kids take classes inside the salt room once a week. The students did their lessons surrounded by pink bricks of salt in the hopes that their lungs would heal from whatever exposure they might have had as infants. The school director told the vice reporter, we're so fortunate our children weren't affected more. Of course we were scared, but it's an unbelievably great achievement what's been done here. But of all the new structures, perhaps the most beautiful reminder of the strength of the town after the disaster is the new chapel. The spire of the church was built to resemble a pair of wings. Like the town of Devachere itself, the spire recalls a phoenix rising from the ashes. Thanks for listening to Natural Disasters. We'll be back next Thursday with a new episode. You can find all episodes of Natural Disasters and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast originals, like Natural Disasters, for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Natural Disasters on Spotify, just open the app and type Natural Disasters in the search bar. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. 
We'll see you next time. Natural Disasters was created by Max Cutler and is a ParCast Studios original. It's executive produced by Max Cutler. Sound designed by Anthony Valsic, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Isabella Way. This episode of Natural Disasters was written by Anna Kira Stinson, with writing assistance by Kate Gallagher and stars Tim Johnson and Kate Leonard.